Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Those of you who have been following uh, my written commentary over at LifeSiteNews.com, where I write about three columns a week, will know that I attended the National Conservatism Conference uh, back in July. And at this conference, there, they had a whole range of fantastic speakers, authors, thinkers, scholars, and I, I wrote a couple of columns for LifeSite News on Tucker Carlson's speech, on J.D. Vance's speech. And I also wrote a bit about a speech given by Dr. Patrick Deneen. And Dr. Patrick Deneen, for those of you who follow the, the books that have been coming out recently on the state of our society today and why essentially classical liberalism hasn't worked out, why conservatism is in such crisis. Donald Trump, after all, was a symptom of deep political satisfaction rather than a solution to it. He uh, published last year at Yale University Press a book called Why Liberalism Failed, a book that attracted a lot of attention not just on the right, not just in conservative circles, but also on the left. So, Patrick Deneen got, you know, the condemnations that are almost required at this point from from publications like The Guardian. But when President Barack Obama was asked by CNN which books he was reading and recommended, he actually recommended Dr. Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. So it, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating book, and I'll just give you a bit of background here on Dr. Deneen. Uh, his fields of study are constitutional studies and political theory. He holds a BA in English literature and a PhD in political science from Rutgers University. Uh, from 1995 to 1997, he was a speechwriter and special advisor to the director of the United States Information Agency. And from 1997 to 2005, he was an assistant professor of government at Princeton University. From 2005 to uh, 2012, he was an associate professor of government at Georgetown University before joining the faculty of Notre Dame in fall of 2012. He is now the author of several books and numerous articles and reviews and has uh, been invited to deliver lectures around the country and also around the world. He was awarded the Leo Strauss Award for Best Dissertation in Political Theory and an honorable mention uh, for the APSA's Best First Book Award in 2000. He has also been awarded research fellowships from both Princeton and the Earhart Foundation. He is now particularly focusing, and his writing interests are really focusing on the history of political thought, uh, American political thought in uh, particular, religion, politics, and literature and politics, which is, of course, what his 2018 book, Why Liberalism Failed, is all about. Just to give you an idea of how long he's been writing and thinking about these topics, in 2016 he wrote uh, Conserving America, Thoughts on Present Discontents. In 2005 he wrote Democratic Faith, which was published by the Princeton University Press. In 2000, he wrote The Odyssey of Political Theory. Uh, he also wrote The Democratic Soul, or he was the editor of that uh, from the University Press of Kentucky in 2011. And so he's actually been he's been dealing with these topics for years now and really trying to develop 
what's going wrong in the United States and across the Western world, how we can identify these problems and how we can fix them. I had the opportunity to meet him briefly at the National Conservatism uh, Conference. He is he is wonderful in person, and he very warmly agreed to come on and discuss this very important book with us. And so, without further introduction, this is my conversation with Dr. Patrick Deneen, who I reached in London, England. I'll start off by asking a really simple question, and then we'll work our way into some of these big issues as we go. So the, the fundamental question, I guess, is why did you write this book and then when did you start identifying the problems that you articulate in it? Well, I, in some senses, I began writing this book before I knew I was writing this book. So right. it's probably been the last, uh, my guess would be at least 15 years uh, I've been thinking about a lot of the basic ideas in the book. Uh, so it really had a long gestation period. I, I say it was a book that took me a, a short time to write and a long time uh, to think about. Right. Um, in terms of, um, I'm sorry, the second part. When you started identifying the basic problems that you articulate in the book. Right. Yeah, no, and, you know, as, as my, as I just indicated, um, the, the, there's a long, I guess, uh, prehistory to the actual book itself. So I, I think um, a lot of what I begin to identify there arose from some deep discontents with the way that our that the U.S. politics and even global politics was sort of structured and seemed to be arranged that struck me as reflecting um, ultimately a kind of pro- very problematic set of, of options, right. uh, that they were all within this kind of orbit of what I was beginning to identify as really a single ideology uh, of liberalism that I thought was um, really uh, ultimately um, – didn't conform with what I thought would be a requirement for um, some conception of, of, of common good and, and public good. So uh, it wasn't in particular a reflection or a response to immediate any immediate political event as much as it was uh, just reflection of kind of a broader discontent with the current way of things were organized and ordered. If you had to summarize your thesis in a, in a really succinct way for the listeners that haven't read your book and, and kind of want to know whether or not uh, they should pick it up and really delve into it, how would you summarize the thesis of your book? Well, in a, in a nutshell, I guess the, the shortest version of, of the thesis of the book is that uh, liberalism is failing because liberalism is succeeding, um, that what the political and philosophical social economic order we call liberalism set out to do was to liberate human beings from uh, uh, sort of unchosen relationships, um, uh, places, times, people um, that uh, in some senses we didn't consent uh, to being involved with. And, And in the course of that liberation, created a humanity that's increasingly um, isolated, separate, uh, people without histories, people without a sense of destiny, um, dislocated, uh, and increasingly um, uh, disconnected. And uh, I, I think many of the sources of kind of our contemporary political crisis arises from a kind of desire for a kind of identity uh, that we're seeing now 
uh, articulated in the in the um, the sort of the quest to preserve some idea of a national identity and national um, uh, membership, uh, but which it seems to me has its deeper roots in the the sort of anomy and and fragmentation that liberalism itself has given rise to. Now, I don't know how closely you've been following this uh, from London, but a lot of, of what is in your book and a lot of lectures I've seen you give and articles and stuff like that, that that you've put out over the last couple of years seem to be identifying most of the issues that are at play right now in the debate between the uh, New York Post's So Rabba Mary and then David French of the National Review on basically classical liberalism, uh, versus, you know, orienting the state towards the common good. And so Rob, uh, who had a recent debate with French and is soon to have another one, says he hasn't really articulated exactly what he means so far. But to what extent is the debate between French and Amari a debate uh, over the thesis of your book? Yeah, I would say that's one. Um, that debate, uh, as much as I'm following it right now, is certainly... Um, a part of what I'm identifying in my book, uh, which uh, is really goes to the heart of, I think, in some ways, what what the position. Again, I haven't followed it as closely in the recent uh, weeks, but what I think David French, in many ways, articulates is that in one might have one's deepest personal commitments, which I, I think he clearly does, mm-hmm. but within the context of a liberal society, those commitments are in some ways have to be regarded as secondary. Um, to the commitments we have to the regime of liberalism itself. So um, the the commitments to free speech, religious liberty, um, you know, typically things we associate with the First Amendment, which I think was part of the debate that took place the other night was kind of over the First Amendment. Um, and uh, I guess I, I think what Saurabh has, has articulated uh, and others have articulated, and I think what in many ways in my book uh, I, I attempt to articulate is that um, the, the the preliminary commitment to the liberal regime ends up in many ways um, ultimately committing you not to the impartial neutral principles of liberalism but actually orients society as a whole to the kind of deeper relativism um, and um, sort of ideals of the liberated self that are actually embedded in those purportedly neutral commitments. Uh, so uh, they, those purportedly neutral commitments end up actually uh, in, in kind of deep ways undermining um, the what, what become the secondary commitments that are viewed as sort of private or personal commitments. So for liberalism to fail, it has to be given the chance to succeed. Well, you know, in some ways, you could say the 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 due date is already built in. I guess right. uh, uh, that um, there's a kind of logic again, as, as I'm as I argue, there's a logic within these liberal commitments that ends up undermining the very sources of, for you could say that the kinds of sources that are needed for a liberal society to flourish, but which liberalism itself can't provide, which it actually ends up undermining. One of the things that's sort of interesting about the ongoing debate inside conservatism right now, and and virtually every major uh, conservative commentator has weighed in over the past couple of months, and we've done a few interviews on this subject uh, on this podcast, one of the things that's sort of interesting is, is that young conservatives, and a lot of people listening to this will think, well, liberal... We're, we're not liberal, we're conservatism. They don't, they don't even understand 
all of the terms being used because all of the the more incendiary rhetoricians and the pundits like Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh and work your way down the list will use liberal to describe the left and will use conservative to describe themselves. So in what ways the terminology in this debate sort of shifted because we're talking about conservatives as classical liberals? Right. Yeah, no, and in fact, I think I think one thing this debate has clarified is that many self-identified conservatives, certainly of a previous generation, are now being much more conscious uh, and uh, explicit that that they are maybe more properly called classical liberals. Um, you know, it's striking. I, I read and recently reviewed George Will's new book in which he, in fact, in the title calls it the, right, the conservative, um, what was it, the conservative disposition, or I can't remember the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but in fact, throughout the book, he actually calls himself a classical. What's that? Sensibility. That's right, the conservative sensibility. Thank you. Um, but throughout the book, he actually calls himself a classical liberal, um, and he's quite explicit about that. So I do think there's a bit of obfuscation, or at least maybe confusion, mm-hmm. um, that uh, what we typically call conservative, or have typically called conservative in the United States, has more often than not been what we might properly call a classical liberal. In other words, it's a form of liberalism that predates what we now think of as progressive liberalism or what figures like Ann Coulter or Rush Limbaugh just call liberals. Mm -hmm. And more properly, I think what we need to understand is that these are two variants or versions of liberalism itself. And I think what the argument of my book um, really attempts to highlight is how those seemingly opposite positions of classical liberalism and progressive liberalism have actually worked in a kind of joint way to undermine what I think of as the deeper commitments that a conservative properly understood should hold. Um, that, um, that especially the effort to um, sort of displace and replace uh, kind of the, the, the deeper commitments of human beings to other humans' times and, and places um, uh, through mechanisms that depersonalize our relationships, whether it's the state or whether it's the marketplace, um, whether it's sort of the left's commitment to the depersonalized mechanism of the state or the right's um, commitment to the depersonalized mechanism of the marketplace, that these two seeming opposites have actually worked in almost a kind of coordinated way to successfully liberate humans through both the state and the market, both of which have increased in scope, scale, size, um, and comprehensiveness, um, while leaving us increasingly isolated, um, solitary, relatively weak, and um, it seems to me contributing to the sense that neither the neither the state nor the market is the place of our sort of devotions, and I think explains something of our contemporary politics. Now, this is very interesting because if you uh, like any conservative conference, especially when I was growing up, if you went to CPAC, if you went to any of these places, Ronald Reagan was more or less the Zeus of of the presidential pantheon. And then you've pointed out now uh, that liberalism has come about or has become, sorry, hyper individualistic and that basically the hyper individualism promoted by by Reaganism and and Reagan's classical liberalism has sort of given rise to the identity politics that the, the left is now so famous for that the hyper individualism put forward um, by people like Ronald Reagan has given rise to the hyper autonomy that has led us to things like 
transgenderism. Can you kind of explain that? Because I think for, if you had told me that when I was attending CPAC at age 19, I think I would have been stunned. Um, but now this is a, the conversations that are taking place inside conservatism would have seemed like sacrilege a little while ago. It's long past time, obviously, that these conversations are being had. Yeah, so um, uh, it is. I mean, Ronald Reagan was, of course, a um, extraordinary figure, um, and um, really, as a political figure, had this real adept ability uh, to put together what um, otherwise might be put asunder. And in the conservative movement, this was especially uh, libertarians and social conservatives. Um, and as we're, as I think, as you're pointing out, um, that. Um, that coalition was never entirely uh, comfortable together, right? That the, the, the deeper commitments of those two sides of the conservative spectrum, in fact, have um, relatively little in common except for their common opposition, especially at that time, to communism. Right. They, both sides were opposed to communism. So it was more, you know, what they were against that held them together than anything that they were for. So in some ways, you could say the effort to sort of, you know, the kind of ongoing effort to invoke Ronald Reagan as the talisman that will hold us together has really ceased to have any effect because the circumstances that led to the that coalition, and in particular, the threat of communism has ceased to exist, or at least in the form that it existed then. Um, and, and as a result, I think what we are seeing is a real uh, reassessment of the nature of conservatism, how that conservatism manifests itself uh, in the contemporary political movement. I think in, in terms of what you were just pointing to, um, the, the way in which in particular someone like Ronald Reagan stressed um, the, the individual and the role of the individual um, uh, really did ultimately reflect what was, in some ways, a kind of deep continuity with a more progressive, if I could put it this way, a more progressive tendency that's existed in the American um, sort of social context. Uh, Ronald Reagan frequently invoked his the person he considered to be his favorite political philosopher, who was Thomas Paine. And right. the line that he really liked from Thomas Paine, uh, and he used it often, uh, was the line, I believe we have it in our power to start the world over again. And this is a remarkable line uh, for any conservative to use, that we have it in our power to start the world over again. But we should also remember that the great uh, antagonist and and um, uh, debating partner of Paine's was none other, none other than Edmund Burke. And so for someone like Reagan to take Paine as his sort of political philosophical hero, or at least the person he most frequently invoked, in some ways you're suggesting, or at least what was being suggested was, this is a kind of commitment that's opposite to someone who we might otherwise think of as the forefather of the conservative uh, intellectual tradition, which would be which would be Edmund Burke. One of the things I was wondering, uh, kind of really looking at, at, at the theses you put forward and then some of the responses to it, is the extent to which the threat of communism actually held all of these disparate conservative factions together. I remember this one really compelling column Peter Hitchens wrote years ago where he said that some days he was nostalgic for the Berlin Wall because as long as it was up, it kept communism and leftism um, sort of barricaded behind it. But when it came down, uh, the progressives no longer had to somehow explain away the inevitable results of their ideology. And they, those ideologies were once again let loose into Western civilization. And so obviously that's sort of a, a stereotypically dark view of the whole thing. But to what extent did communism 
provide the foil that allowed this uh, conservative fusionism, which is now being so questioned, to flourish? Well, it's certainly, I mean, as we just as we were just saying, it's certainly the case that um, communism was the external pressure that kept together what was otherwise uh, a very uncomfortable uh, set of parts, uh, that, that three-legged stool that's often described as fusionism. Um, and in particular, um, that the three legs uh, dealt respectively with economics, uh, with the sort of more libertarian um, economists um, dominating that area, uh, foreign policy with the anti-communist uh, hawks dominating what we think of today as neoconservatives dominating that part, uh, and then social conservatives um, with a special interest in um, you know some of the more uh, controversial Supreme Court decisions and uh, uh, education issues and so forth, and maybe more cultural issues. What's striking to me, I guess, in retrospect, and I think this is where you're seeing um, a lot of the energy from the kind of uh, Sora Bamari um, challenge to the likes of David French, is that during the period in which fusionism was ascendant, right, think of Ronald Reagan to some extent, George H.W. Bush to some extent, George W. Bush, but really, you know, for roughly five presidential terms and a lot of congressional uh, um, uh, victories, for the period that that was the defining aspect of conservatism, you could say that the conservative um, or the the libertarian element um, did fairly well in terms of tax policy, um, trade policy, globalization of markets, financialization of the economy, and so forth. You could say that the Cold War hawks or the neoconservatives did very well, uh, given the number of wars, given the number of um, uh, engagements that the United States military engaged in the effort to promote, to promote democracy abroad. Obviously, the Iraq war was, was a part of that effort. Whereas you could say that the social conservatives, um, those who were especially interested in the cultural issues, did dismally. Uh, not only did the justices who were appointed under the presidents, the presidents who were elected in part to, to, to appoint conservative justices, did those justices fail to deliver on what was promised. Uh, you had Justice Kennedy, in fact, as the deciding vote and the author of the, the gay marriage decision. Right. But you actually saw a reversal in many ways of what had been at least some cultural forms and norms that had held sway in the 1980s that ceased to exist by the sort of end of the fusionist era. So I think at this point, someone like Amari, and I would actually count myself, would say fusionism turned out to be a disaster. Uh, for um, social conservatives. And this is why I think you're seeing the sort of declaration of independence of social conservatives from what they see as the disastrous partners of warmongers and libertarians, if I can be so bold as to say that. Mm -hmm. One of the difficulties in this discussion that's consistently come up, and, and you see this uh, with the Arab, uh, so the Sorab uh, French debate as well, is that people are coming to to realize and to recognize that liberty and freedom aren't ideologies, whereas before you could say that, you know, you believed in liberty and you believed in freedom and people would, you know, sort of subscribe an entire ideology to those phrases. Uh, so we've realized that they're not. We've, we've especially realized something which people didn't really realize, at least in conservative circles, for quite a while, which is that liberty and freedom aren't enough. But then the question that's really at the crux of a whole bunch of these debates is what is our limiting principle? when we look at, at freedom and liberty. And one of the things that you've said uh, is that you don't reject the liberal order because Christians wanting to live in peace and the wreckage of Western civilization really have no other option. 
So what do you think the limiting principle should should be and what do you think that we can do in the current circumstances that we find ourselves in? Well, of course, you know, the language of liberty, you use the word liberty and freedom almost interchangeably. Um, this is a, it's almost a kind of cipher, that word is invoked uh, without real reflection on what that means. What it has typically meant is the dominant liberal understanding of that word, which is liberty is when I am sort of have no external constraint or limitation upon the pursuit and the achievement of the thing that I want. And in the, you could say in the classical tradition and in the Christian tradition, or more broadly the biblical tradition, that's the actually the opposite of what it is to be free, oddly enough. Um, the idea that simply pursuing one's appetites, desires, or, or the objects of one's will uh, that, that that's what constitutes liberty would be an absurd idea, that liberty is when you've achieved a kind of mastery over your appetites, a kind of discipline over the limitless desires of the human self. Uh, so really what it seems to me um, that uh, one of the deepest infections, you could say, of of liberalism has been the transformation of the word liberty to a meaning that would have been Opposite and unrecognizable in an older tradition. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's not that. Uh, in some ways, it's not that liberty is uh, was rejected or or um, uh, uh, you know uninteresting to a, a pre-liberal age. It was simply that the understanding and definition of what constituted liberty liberty was actually quite different. If one begins with and pursues a different understanding of liberty more in accordance with that classical tradition, then that begins to lay out what would, in fact, be some limiting features, right, of what constitutes liberty. So liberty would in some ways have to, you know, in some ways you'd have to say uh, it would ha- it would have to in some ways put an emphasis in our economic thinking and in our kind of um, economic behavior upon frugality, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it, would, it would militate against indebtedness as a kind of principle of our economic system. Uh, it would argue against um, extensive um, expansion of one's trade and marketplace to the extent that that made one increasingly dependent upon foreign powers. This was an argument that was made by the so-called anti-federals at the time of the American founding, a real concern with the loss of sovereign power, and and kind of, you could say, by extension, the loss of sovereign power over oneself. So it seems to me that there's there's a lot of limiting principles of liberty that one would begin to invoke um, when one had a different conception of liberty. But if one's conception of liberty is the absence of restraint upon pursuing what I want, the interesting thing to me is that not only does that lift a kind of limiting principle upon one's own behavior, but it actually in many ways begins to implicate the, the sort of the viability of a limited government, right? It really begins right. to compromise the idea that government should be limited because government needs to expand and increase its power. Let's say the state needs to increase and expand its power in order to allow and give the possibility of it for its citizens to pursue their appetites and desires without limit. You need to have an expansion of opportunities to pursue Mm -hmm. our our appetites, our desires. And so in interesting ways, what we think about as the modern conception of liberty ends up undermining the idea of a limited government. Well, it's very interesting because one of one of the the old guard libertarian heroes, uh, as you know, is Rose Wilder Lane, the daughter of 
of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And one of the recent biographers of her actually pointed out that she conceptualized liberty as because we have no king to rule us, we must be good before God, because if we are not good, everything falls apart. That her her conceptualization of being a libertarian was actually having a responsibility rather than a carte blanche to sort of do whatever you want. But the second you switch from seeing liberty as a responsibility before God or replacing the king with a a vertical relationship up uh, and instead saying, well, this just means I can do whatever you want, the, the guardrails end up falling down and you end up, well, in something that is similar to what we're living in right now. Well, I think this is a, that what what she articulated, and I don't know. Um, I don't know. Actually, don't I don't know enough about her to speak to her personally. But what strikes me is is very consistent with an older understanding of what people understood by the idea of a republic. That that uh, it's precisely a republic that requires a very high degree of sort of self-disciplined self-rule. Uh, the very word republic, of course, comes from the Latin, which means public things. And, and public things means that in some ways we have to, to, you know, to some extent restrain or discipline our desire to pursue private things for the sake of, of a public good. Uh, so everything you described as her saying in, uh, in opposition to a monarchy is really consistent with what was, what certainly at that time seen as the opposite of monarchy, which wasn't anarchy. It was republicanism, and right. republicanism demanded a high degree of sort of civic capacity and self-rule rather than the kind of, I think, dominant idea of liberty is simply doing what we want to do. When we look at what's happening right now, and I really wanted to ask you this question because a lot of our listeners and a lot of our readers, when, when they're confronted with the absolutely bizarre state of affairs with transgenderism and all of these things that seem to be metastasizing too fast for people to even you know, see past what's going on. Um, you've, you've made the point that, that liberalism now makes war on nature itself, and these recent gender wars are a very good example of that. And this, what's crazy is this happened in an incredibly short amount of time. I'm only 31. This was not a thing on campuses when I was going to one of Canada's most liberal universities a very short time ago. But we've seen this phenomenon explode onto the scene. So what's your analysis of, of how this happened in such a short amount of time? Well, in one sense, yeah, you're right. It's a very short amount of time. Um, but on the other hand, of course, this I would say this has been a, a sort of boulder that's been gathering uh, speed as it rolls down the hill. And you could you could go back to you know I think to uh, no fault divorce if you want to go back uh, you know several decades. Um, you could certainly go back to the Supreme Court decisions and the changing attitudes toward um, contraception, Griswold and Eisenstadt decisions which then feed into uh, Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, that decision feeds into, of course, uh, ultimately the, the overturning of DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, and then uh, the Obergefell decision. And then it was a fairly quick uh, boulder roll uh, to transgenderism. And all these have to do really with, um, you know, to, to, to extend the idea of a war on nature, uh, you know, the, the war on nature, as the, even that phrase, uh, is one that goes back to the Renaissance and it's used by figures like Francis Bacon. Um, John Dewey uses it often in the American context. And, and in, its, in that incarnation, it was really thought of as the, the dominance of human beings over the external world, over the natural world, um, our ability to understand and then manipulate, uh, especially through applied science, through technology, um, the, the stuff of nature. 
but we can see how quickly that that project it becomes directed toward the nature of human beings itself, right? That the, mm-hmm. this technological project is no longer simply ab- uh, about controlling the world out there, but has to be directed ultimately inward to our own nature, because that's, of course, a limiting principle on our liberty, uh, the fact that we have natures. So this, this uh, as I describe it, a kind of rolling a stone that gathers a boulder that gathers speed, has been really about... Um, the extension and increasing capacity of human beings both to not only to manipulate our nature through through various forms of technology but the normalization of this manipulation the the embrace of this as in some ways the destiny of human beings and and i think the you know in some ways the hardest nut to crack for human beings has been the the mastery of reproduction itself uh and i think that's really where some of these issues are coming to a head is you know, really the question of whether or not the natural processes of reproduction are themselves ultimately going to be subject to our complete control. So I, I think a lot of these issues today dealing with sexuality, with, with, with the ideas of gender, gender identity, and so forth, are really, uh, and the heat that they generate, are really when the point at which this war on nature touches the core of what it is to be a human being is we're going to see that in some ways the most explosive nature of these very debates. So your analysis wasn't very optimistic at at the end of it all, as most of, uh, books of this sort generally aren't. And and one of the things that you put forward as a potential solution, especially for Christians and traditionalists who want to reject uh, what liberalism has done to society and want to begin to live lives of meaning um, that that actually live out what it means to be human, you know, live live in dedication to faith in their families. And you put forward this idea of intentional communities. And what I wanted to ask is, what does these look like in your mind? And is this sort of a, a manifestation of Rod Dreher's Benedict option of sort of a strategic retreat and a withdrawal from society to focus inward on our own communities? Or is this something that involves sort of a, a very, very hard defense, but also offensive measures to try and retake parts of society and recolonize parts of civilization? Yeah, no. So when when I concluded the book, it really was you know kind of the question of what do we do now, and I wanted to offer something. Uh, but frankly, you're right. I was fairly pessimistic. Um, I saw, uh, as far as the eye could see, on the one hand, a kind of, um, as I put it in the book, the 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 failure of liberalism in many ways, uh, the kind of increasing. Um, atomized human beings, uh, the sense of powerlessness that people had uh, felt toward uh, an encompassing state and a, and a, a marketplace that seemed to be autonomous and, and dr- driven by its own logic. And I suggested at the conclusion of that, well, you know, the thing that we can do now probably is not think about some kind of systematic transformation. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be entirely plausible. Rather, perhaps it's just going to be how we live our lives. And I was really thinking about it not in terms of, you know, how, whether or not this is the Benedict option or what you will. I, I think in many ways I was influenced by Rod's thinking, but really more as um, uh, as a kind of witness uh, in a time in which so many lives would be, it seems to me, increasingly devastated by a kind of meaninglessness, purposelessness, the lack of a kind of sense that I belong to something larger than myself, that if you saw, if one saw the kind of witness, the example of people living joyfully 
in um, really kind of much more, as, as you know, as, as you put it there, uh, intentional kinds of community, that this would become itself a kind of trans, have the capacity of being a kind of transformational example. So I was really thinking more in terms of a kind of bottom-up um, uh, example, a uh, way of life, as opposed to the, you know, some idea of a top-down transformation. With that said, I, I also conclude the book by saying this is also a time when we are going to be need, begin to need, be needing to think rather more systematically, uh, to begin to be imaginative in our political thinking about alternatives. And so I don't conclude the book simply saying, you know, we're going to need these these sort of small-scale, more local forms of living, but we're also going to need to be really thoughtful and creative in thinking alternatively. You know, I, I was thinking in part, you know, liberalism begins you know, maybe 500, 400, 500 years ago in the, in the offices, in the brains of a few, of a few thinkers, of a few people Mm -hmm. thinking of a different way of life than the one that they were living right then. And why isn't, why shouldn't we think it's the case that there are some people with us right now, you know, maybe you're one of them, Uh, maybe, maybe one of your listeners is the future John Locke for a new system, a new way of thinking, a new way of being in the world. Uh, something that will be um, the successor to this liberal order. Uh, it's not. It's not inevitable. It's not the end of history. Uh, human history is still being written and still being lived. So I really did end the book with a kind of invitation to a kind of new departure in political philosophy. So, to what extent do you think? Is this is I, this is uh, the first time I heard you speak in person? I'd, I'd heard your lectures online before, but at the National Conservatism Conference this summer. Uh, which was a huge gathering of, of of traditionalist intellectuals, authors, observers, commentators, you name it. And while I was there, uh, listening listening to the different lectures and stuff like that, it was a, it was very invigorating because everybody seemed so. <laughs> I hate to use the word in this context, but everybody seemed so liberated to be there. Um, to have conversations that you wouldn't necessarily have at CPAC or a Young Americans for Freedom conference. And a lot of people at the end of that conference, when they were chatting together, uh, you were there, J.D. Vance, Yoram Hazani, work your way down the list, really felt like that that conference might have been what you just referred to, a meeting of thinkers and minds that might start charting a different way that still would maintain a lot of the the conservative principles that are obviously very dear to us, but at the same time could, could chart different solutions to the problems that have been considered from um, you know the the threat of pornography, which is leveling culture at a rate uh, that like it's nothing like anything we've seen before. Over half a million years of pornography, if you add up the time, were watched on Pornhub in 2016 alone worldwide. Uh, and just taking a look at how we can address these problems more creatively, what was your feeling coming out of that conference? And and did you feel optimism and hopefulness that this might be the start of something new, or was it just a, a you know a great meeting of of friends to exchange you know great ideas? Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I've actually been mulling this uh, since the conclusion of that meeting. Uh, in some ways, it was uh, it was about four different kinds of meetings in the same space. And, right. And part of what you describe is the kind of sense of, you know, real um, maybe the the beginnings of a new political movement. Um, you know, the possibility of a new kind of a coalition of, um, you know, largely of sort of social conservatives and a kind of working class. Um, you know, what we would have once thought about as the, the 
blue collar or working class, uh, which would have once identified with the with the Democratic Party. Um, uh, there was also an element of the conference that was was a, kind of an intellectual exercise, you know, trying to work out and hash out a number of the different ideas uh, that uh, uh, that are going to have to be worked through because there's obviously a lot of different views on a lot of uh, different issues, um, some, some very difficult issues. Um, and uh, some of that was um, just uh, in some ways kind of what you would expect from a more academic kind of conference. <laughs> right. um, uh, more adventurous ideas being disseminated, discussed, explored. Uh, there was a kind of rally aspect to it, uh, you know. So it was it was a lot of different things going on at that meeting, but I, I do think that um, some of some of those different aspects of that meeting are probably going to need to be um, somewhat differentiated in in um, maybe in future iterations. And so there will, it seems to me, and I've, I've mentioned this to to Yoram Hazoni, there there needs to be a kind of a smaller group of maybe more. Academic-y, intellectual, journalist types thinking through, you know, in a way that's not, that doesn't get mistaken as more of a rally experience, thinking through a number of these different ideas, you know, locating points that will have to be developed and so forth. I think there is a space for more of the rally, more of the, you know, getting people excited about this as a possibility. Um, but, uh, but because in some ways there was a, it was a little bit of everything, uh, in the one hand, it made it uh, an extremely interesting event, unlike anything I've ever attended before. Yes. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, not necessarily always the the most contemplative <laughs> kind of a yeah. kind of a gathering. So, what would you tell uh, somebody? Somebody who's young. We have a lot of young listeners, uh, people between the ages, you know, of 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 eighteen and 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 thirty. And when they're looking at Western civilization, they hear a lot of doom and gloom from a lot of places, right? You've got you've got Rod Dreher basically saying, you know, we need to head for the hills and fortify there. You've got Peter Hitchens saying. Um, there is no hope. I, I had him on the podcast and asked him um, what 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 he he suggested that people do, and his answer was literally despair. Was a, what was his was his one word response, which is which is very stereotypical, but at the same time not illogical based on what he had told us previously. Uh, Douglas Murray says that we're in for some huge convulsions. He'll be coming on the podcast later. Uh, Mary Aberstadt, who who I know uh, you know as well, uh, came on the podcast earlier, also talked about the, the, the social convulsions people are going through. And so obviously uh, the, the personal hope lies lies in actual faith. Uh, but in terms of the temporal situation, what do you tell uh, young people who are looking at the future? And I know this is hard for young people because they'll say, my grandparents, after having you know raised a whole bunch of kids and, and had a career, look back and say, you can't have anything I can have. And it looks like they're right. So what, what do you, what do you tell young people after all of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually surprisingly hopeful. And, and, and I say that as someone who's usually very, about as pessimistic as all the people you've just described, okay. uh, in part precisely because I do think we're in the midst of these convulsions. And I, and I see these, these political convulsions, these uh, social convulsions as sort of signs from the world that what we are doing right now is fundamentally wrong. Right. right? I mean, you know, if you if you try to do, you know, just even in the most modest way, if you try to do something in the world that's wrong, the world is going to give you feedback to, to that to that extent. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, as it turns out, it takes longer for that feedback 
to um, come back to us when it's something as big as sort of global politics. But it's happening, right? We are seeing feedback from the world uh, that um, this basic experiment of what I what I think of as the the ideology of liberalism playing out its logic, it turns out it's just not a sustainable project. It's just not something that human beings um, ultimately um, can bear, uh, that it doesn't conform to our nature. Uh, so I'm actually in some ways hopeful. I do think, you know, obviously in, in a time of convulsion, it's it's a time uh, that's extremely uh, discomforting, um, anxiety-producing, extremely difficult. Uh, one doesn't necessarily wish to live for those through those times. On the other hand, as a young person, I would think um, as difficult as it might be, it's also a time of extraordinary opportunity, uh, opportunity to be you know, potentially a very important thinker or a very important actor in ways that, uh, you know, I would say certainly weren't true in my generation. Everything seemed to be largely settled and normal politics applied. Uh, that, uh, especially with some of my students who are extremely thoughtful and interested in these questions, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, I issue an invitation to them. You know, you could be the next John Locke or the next St. Augustine or the next, um, you know, maybe the next Ronald Reagan or what you will. In other words, it's a time that does issue a call for greatness. And um, I, I would think as a young person of a particular type, it would be, it would be a, a time of inspiration and aspiration. Well, that's very, very uplifting uh, to hear and definitely different than what we've been hearing from a lot of commentators, even on this podcast. And I guess my final question would be, how did you feel about Barack Obama recommending your book? Well, we have to be careful. He uh, he, he said he read the book. He he found much worth uh, worth pondering, but he disagreed with the conclusion. And I wish I knew what uh, what he disagreed with. It was certainly um, uh, a surprise, and um, you know, frankly, a delightful surprise to know that a former president had read my book and recommended it, and didn't hurt my sales. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, uh, it, it, I think it's a testimony. He's a thoughtful man. Say what you will, perhaps, of his politics, but he is a thoughtful man, and I do think he does try to understand our world. Uh, but more than that, um, and I, I gather your listeners are largely conservative, but in, if, if you do pick up my book and, and, or for readers of my book, what's really interesting to me is that I actually wrote it thinking the only people that would be interested in it would be conservative. Right. And what has surprised me most about the reception of my book is how many people on the left have picked it up and found much to admire, obviously much to disagree with, but also much to admire. And it gives me some hope that maybe um, amid the, the deep divide of our world today, that there might be some areas, there might, you know, obviously not some areas, but, uh, you know, not every area, but there might be some areas where, uh, perhaps the what's the seeming uh, you know, board, you know bri- unbridgeable divide between the left and the right today might might uh, might find some some capacity for us to speak over that uh, over that chasm. Uh, so I I take the reception by figures like Obama, Ezra Klein, a number of people on the left, as as a hopeful sign that that there's a kind of agreement that something is fundamentally wrong and we need to think more fundamentally. And if it turns out that we you know, we may disagree about what the post-liberal future looks like, but something needs to be fundamentally changed. Uh, then I think that's a conversation worth having. Where can our listeners find your book? Um, I'm sure Amazon has a few copies. Yale University Press is its publisher, so uh, those adept at the world of online shopping, I'm sure, can find it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and having this discussion. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Patrick Deneen, the author of Why Liberalism Failed. If you want to listen to past episodes of this podcast, please head over to iTunes, SoundCloud, Pippa, wherever you get your podcasts at. You can find all previous episodes also at lifesightnews.com. You just click on the podcasts button and you can find my podcast there. Uh, on the blog as well, I write several columns a week, which you can find as well on lifesightnews.com. So thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.